This week on Geek Explained, to celebrate the release of Fast 9, we're taking life one quarter mile at a time, as I rank every film in the Fast and Furious saga. Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host and the only man who can do a pitch-perfect Vin Diesel impression, Eric Azana, and this week we are celebrating the Fast and Furious movies. I know it's strange, but if you've had any conversation with me, if you've talked to me for any amount of time, you would know that I am a big fan of the Fast and Furious movies. And this week, we are getting the ninth film in the franchise, F9, Fast 9, Fast and Furious 9, all of the different titles that you want to give to it. It is dropping into theaters this Friday as of this recording. And to celebrate, I'm going to be ranking the other eight films in this franchise. I am very excited to talk about these films. I did a full-on rewatch just to get all of my thoughts together, and I cannot wait to share that with you. We also have a jam-packed week of comics in this week's comics countdown but before we get into all of that let's check in with this week's news All right, guys and dolls, let's talk some news. We have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. Going to kick things off with miscellaneous news, two pieces of video game news. First off, for fans of the Kingdom Hearts series like myself, uh, if you don't already know, now you know that Kingdom Hearts Union Cross officially shut down this past week. Uh, Right now, all you can do when you log into your account, if you have an account for that game, is basically view all of the cutscenes in kind of a theater mode. The game finished up its run with uh, its final story update, I think a couple weeks ago, and now both the international version as well as the US version are done and dusted. Uh, You do see if you have been following along with Kingdom Hearts Dark Road that you will get your next update for that game uh, in September. So fret not if you are a mobile Kingdom Hearts fan, there is more stuff coming, but it is kind of an end of an era and possibly maybe time to update some Kingdom Hearts episodes. Ooh, maybe, maybe we might be coming back to that series. We'll have to see. And then in some very, um, I don't, take this with a grain of salt. I don't know how to feel about this news. Uh, rumors have been circulating this past week that uh, Warner Brothers Montreal, the video game company that has churned out some good stuff, I would say, in the past, you know, decade or so, as potentially working on a Superman game. We have heard this. The reason, because 
you would think that, oh man, Eric's going to be super excited about this. I would be very excited about this if I hadn't heard the same rumor from three other different studios for the past five years. I mean, I want to be excited about this. I want to get a Superman game. You know how much I want a Superman game. But we had heard for a while that Rocksteady's working on that Superman game. Rocksteady's going to bring Superman back just as they did with Batman when it comes to video games. And then... Suicide Squad killed the Justice League. Like, I can't put too much faith in it until I see a game reveal. Uh, maybe we'll see something at Tokyo Game Show. Maybe we'll see something further on down the line. State of play, possibly. Um, who knows? But until we get more concrete facts about it, I will I will temper my excitement. I really I want to be excited about this because I want a Superman game. But I just, I don't think it's going to happen until we get an actual announcement so don't hold your breath heading on over to comic book news got four pieces of comic book news stretching across both dc and marvel let's knock out the marvel news first first off marvel dark ages you remember that tease from uh, i think it was free comic book day 2019 that uh tom taylor my my boy tom taylor along with artist i believe it's Ivan coelho I know I pronounced that wrong, and I apologize. Uh, they had a teaser. If you aren't familiar, you don't remember it. It's been a while. Uh, where basically all of the uh, technology or electricity in the world just went out at the same time. And so we are going to see what happens after that. Well, it finally gets a release window this past week after teasing from Tom Taylor on Twitter. Say that five times fast. Uh, the series is going to be kicking off in September of 2021 with some very steampunk-esque looking character designs. You know how much I love steampunk, so I'm all in on that. Uh, we'll see. Tom Taylor's been out of the game when it comes to Marvel for a little bit, but I I always trust in Tom Taylor. That's, that is my... Uh, that is my mantra when it comes to comic books. If Tom Taylor's name is on the book, it's pretty good chance it's going to be quality. So we will see where it goes. And also in Marvel news, something I think a lot of people didn't, perhaps didn't see coming, uh, Nick Spencer, who has been on the new Amazing Spider-Man run since for years at this point, uh, pretty much since I believe, uh, Dan Slott wrapped up his run, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, he is going to be officially ending his run. I believe he's been on the character for two and a half or three and a half years at this point. And he's going to be finishing out his run with the character with issue number 74 following the conclusion of Sinister War, I believe. Uh, no news yet on who's going to be picking up the mantle of Spidey when it comes to issue 75 and beyond but you gotta expect issue 75 is gonna be this big like 75 issues we're gonna have a brand new creative team so here's hoping that um that Pat Gleason gets to stay on. I think uh, his work at Marvel has been really good so far, but there just isn't enough of it. And I really hope that Spidey also goes to monthly instead of weekly or bi-weekly, because that's where we saw a lot of the artist turnover. And I think, unfortunately, Spencer's Spidey run is going to... It, it isn't going to 
age well or collect as well because of just so many different artists having to come in to keep up with the schedule. But I digress. I am excited to see where Nick Spencer goes next, and I'm excited to see where Spidey goes next. Hopping over to DC News, two big pieces of DC comic book news. First off, we are getting... Uh, a new Black Manta six-issue miniseries to pair up with, uh, what is his name? Uh, why am I having, uh, Jackson, Jackson, oh God, Jackson Hyde. Uh, God, what? Uh, coffee has not kicked in yet, uh, but uh, we got the announcement last week that Aquaman the Becoming is going to be dropping later this year following not Calderam as he becomes, <laughs> as he goes from Aqualad to Aquaman. And we are getting a double dose of the Hyde family with Black Manta getting a six issue miniseries written by Chuck Brown with art by Valentin Delandro. No news yet on whether those two series are going to tie in together, but. I mean, it's father and son, so you have to assume they will be. But we'll just have to see when we get more information. And then, uh, something that is going to tie into a later segment of this podcast, DC announced that Batman Superman, the Gene Loon Yang series, or really the series that Gene Loon Yang picked up and has only gotten a few issues with, is going to be ending with issue 22. That's right, they are canceling the series. No word on why they're doing it or what reason they have for it, if we're going to get a new uh, number one or what's going on with it but uh that sucks you know how much i love gene Lun yang as a writer and as a creator and it sucks to see what i thought was a very cool concept kind of getting cut off at the knees but i have faith in yang to finish out his run with the book strong and i am looking forward to the next issue stay tuned on that hopping over the tv news something i thought was very exciting it is uh, apparently it basically got leaked by a french uh some french news outlet that we are going to be getting an animated series adapting Final Fantasy IX. Final Fantasy IX, for those of you who don't know, is the story of a plucky young thief who ends up kidnapping a princess and having to save the multiverse. And that is as clear and concise as I can give you for a plot synopsis of that game. <laughs> um, I've talked about it before. Nine uh, isn't my favorite Final Fantasy game, if you want to learn what my favorite Final Fantasy game is, you can go back in the archives and check out my favorite Final Fantasy games episode. But I think that Final Fantasy IX, out of all of them, is probably the best to adapt for an animated series, especially because the news that we're looking at, I'm looking at the article from uh, PC Gamer, is that the uh, show is going to be aimed at 18 to 13, or 18, going to be aimed at 8 to 13 year olds, uh, which makes sense because it is probably the most family friendly out of the um out of the Final Fantasy stories. Uh, and it is being put together by a French studio called, let me see here, uh, French Cyber Group Studios in collaboration with Square Enix. So they are putting this together. I'm assuming it's going to be anime style or very close to that, which I am all for. Give me more Final Fantasy. Even though this isn't my favorite game, I am willing to, uh, willing to put that aside to enjoy some good animated content and 
who knows? Maybe I'll need to replay that at some point in the near future. But that wraps up TV news, and we're going to finish things off with film news. Three pieces of excellent DC Comics film news. First off, we got the very first look at Sasha Kaye's Supergirl in the upcoming Flash film, as well as the first look at Michael Keaton as Old Man Bruce Wayne for that Flash film. Looks like Michael Keaton, just with a little bit more hair. Uh, But the Supergirl reveal was very cool. We got to see, first off, the uh, reveal of her symbol, which is very much pulling from the Henry Cavill uh, Superman logo. And then her suit. If it wasn't obvious that this version of Supergirl is the Lara Lane Kent Supergirl from the Injustice comics, it has to be now. That is a direct one-to-one adapt of the Lara Lane Kent Supergirl costume with the hair, the costume, the whole thing. We just didn't see her with a cape, which I believe there's only a matter of time. Though, someone on Twitter, and I can't remember who it was, pointed out that it's also very similar to the Jonathan Kent uh, costume that I believe was in... um, Oh, gosh. Uh, da, 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 da. I, I mean, his future state costume as well, but I think it's the um, the deceased Dead Planet line. Uh, looks very similar as well, and a very similar John Kent haircut. So, uh, I don't know. No, uh, no news otherwise from that, but the suit looks great. She looks great in it, and I'm excited to see what they do with that character. We also got a brand new trailer for The Suicide Squad coming from James Gunn. A bunch of different actors from the cast were quote-unquote leaking the trailer all day in different videos. I was lucky enough on YouTube to catch it before I was watching a video featuring my boy Captain Boomerang, Jai Courtney, uh, showing off the new trailer. It looks great. Looks really, really good, and it got more Captain Boomerang in uh, the trailer. So I am a happy boy, very excited about that. And by the way, uh, don't forget to hashtag get gun on Geeksplained. Let him know. Uh, but it looks great. I'm still very excited about it. Coming out in August, looking forward to that for sure. And then finally... We got another costume reveal, that being of the Shazam variety, as we got a full-on Shazam family photo with all of the numerous Marvels lined up and showing off their new duds, and very specifically, the actress who played Mary Batson in the first first Shazam film, who, as we all remember, uh, turned into an older version of herself like everyone else in the Shazam family is in the costume herself, which I am very excited about. No disrespect to the um, to the actress that they got for Mary Marvel uh, in the first film, but Mary Marvel is Mary is the same whether she's in or out of costume in the comics. And that's a very small but important note that I really wish that they had gone with. And I talked about this when we did our Into the Snyderverse series. I talked about wanting Mary Marvel to be the only one that doesn't change like she is in the comics. And thankfully, it looks like they are going that direction, which is exciting. The suits, I'm still neither here nor there on. I still think I like the uh, first film suits more uh, because they were brighter. The colors were brighter. Yes, it was very Power Rangers-y, but that's what I liked about it. And I liked the more comics-accurate-looking suits. Um, 
these ones look very much like they were trying to kind of stay in that Snyderverse um, zone where it's like lots of textures and muted colors. So it's unfortunate. I don't think I... I don't think I needed to see them changed, you know, whether you want to like talk about how the fake muscle padding in those suits was obnoxious or not. I think they could have just trimmed down the suits without having to completely give them an overhaul. But that being said, uh, Zachary Levi did say on Twitter that the colors were not as muted as they were portrayed in the picture, which filters and all that i believe so i will wait to see the suits in the trailer and in the film to see how bright or not bright they are but i'm still looking forward to it you know how much i love that shazam film so i am excited all the same but uh that is going to wrap up the news for this week and speaking of films that is going to take us right on over to the main event of this week's episode the main course the entree if you will which is my personal ranking of the Fast and Furious Saga. Are you hyped? That music gets me so hyped. Every single time, no matter how long it's been before I've heard it again, I just, I, mmm. I love that music so much. But this is your main event of this episode where I will be ranking every single Fast and Furious movie. I have been a big fan of the Fast and Furious movies ever since I saw the very first one back when it was just about going fast, back when it was just about cars and no one saw a problem with a concept called race wars. Um... The series has come a long way, we'll just say that, but Fast 9 is releasing in theaters this Friday, and I'm pretty excited about it. We are getting John Cena in the role of Dom's brother, and for those of you who I am completely going to alienate with this episode, I apologize. Um... I really wanted to talk about this. I've been wanting to talk about this uh, film series for a while now, and the reason that I think it resonates with me so well is that, like, these are legitimately, like, live-action comic books. Like, we talk about the comic book movie Boom, we talk about the, we're currently kind of in the golden age of comic book media. This is as comic book as, like, mainstream films can go that don't involve superheroes. Like, The way that this series has evolved and grown from a series that's basically a ripoff of Point Break, and we'll get into that, into a, you know, super spy thriller series that it's become with the last film, like, it is kind of crazy how, um, how this series has evolved over the course of its, uh, entire lifespan it's amazing it's ridiculous and i am very excited to talk about it so a couple things that i want to get out of the way i mentioned it at the top when i started the episode Uh, i'm going to be ranking all eight films in the fast and furious series Uh, i know what you're saying you're saying it to me right now and i can hear you you don't think I can. Whenever you say something, when I'm, you know, talking and you say something while you're listening to this podcast, I hear you. I hear you every time. Uh, where's Hobbs and Shaw? 
you may be asking. Well, Hobbs and Shaw is not a Fast and Furious movie. I refuse to believe that that film is a Fast and Furious movie, despite it taking place in the Fast and Furious universe. So, I will be setting that off to the side, because if I did involve that in this series, then I would have to also involve Better Luck Tomorrow. And Better Luck Tomorrow is head and shoulders as a film. So much better than most of this series that it wouldn't be fair. So, I am setting Better Luck Tomorrow and Hobbs and Shaw, even though they are Fast and Furious adjacent films. I'm going to set them off to the side. They have their merits. They are fantastic, especially Better Luck Tomorrow. That is just excellent cinema. Also, directed by Justin Lin. Also, the origin story for Han Lu, a.k.a. Han Solo. That is his name. I am... I encourage you to go watch both those films, especially Better Luck Tomorrow. And with that out of the way, I'm going to get a little bit into my criteria here. So this is my personal list. If you disagree, if you think a film should be way lower or way higher, let me know. Reach out to me on Instagram at Pod, at Twitter at Pod, or send me an email. Send emails to geeksplained at gmail.com. I'll do a whole roundup of that again later on during the wrap-up. But I would love to get your rankings, or even if you just like have a top two or three, or a bottom two or three. If you think a movie is the worst movie that you've ever seen, let me know. I love having those conversations with you guys, and I am excited to talk about this. But again, this is my personal list. If you disagree, feel free to let me know, and I want to hear your list. And also, when it comes to these films, the way I looked at them, I rewatched the entire series, not just for this episode, but also to get myself in the zone for Fast 9. Um, and there was something that as I was watching the films, I really started to key into and something that I kind of grade the films on. Uh, this isn't like a situation of like, oh man, there's a point system, but I did attribute ratings to these, uh, to these films because I got to rank them somehow. And in that In that effort, I came up with what I think is the perfect way to grade and judge these movies. Because when it comes down to it, you have this series, the the I was going to say the Final Fantasy series, all the FFs this week, um, and Fantastic Four. But the Fast and Furious series is probably the best example of needing to understand the intention of the film as much as the presentation of the film. The films themselves are presented in a way... But they are not always intended to be perceived that way. You know, you've this this comes down to like film criticism and like the whole, you know, philosophy behind that. Like what were the creators trying to say with this film or what were the creators intending to do with this film? And kind of putting that alongside what you as the audience gleaned from that film. Like, did you understand what the director, what the writer, what everyone that put their all into each film were trying to convey and how well they conveyed it? And this is a film series where you you kind of need to understand that the film series knows what it is. It didn't for a little while there, and we'll talk about that, but... 
as it stands right now, it has gotten into this mode of knowing exactly what it needs to be. And in that, they have what I call the three-tier rating system. I am judging these films on how fast they are, how furious they are, and how stupid they are. These are my personal ratings once again, but... I encourage you to re-watch these films and judge them accordingly by these scales. Now, what does it mean when I'm judging something by how fast it is, how furious it is, and how stupid it is? Uh, how fast it is refers to how much cars are at the center of the story, how much it aligns with the original intent of the series where the first the first I would say the first three films were very much just about street racing and kind of getting in trouble with the law adjacent to that uh, these are films that you know you when you are looking at each film in the series you have to say how much of a leap in logic is it to go from the first film in the series the fast and the furious to here when it comes to the world, when it comes to the presentation, the characters, and the actions. When I talk about how furious it is, this is all testosterone, baby. We are talking about how much uh, baby oil you can smell while watching the film. We talk about how, um, like I said, the, the levels of testosterone in the film, how much action there is outside of the cars, and how character-driven it is. I know, it's weird, but when it comes to the Furious the furious rating, it's all about the character development, it's all about the action outside of the cars, and it's all about how just how much testosterone you can squeeze in out of a two-hour movie. And then finally, probably the most self-explanatory one, how stupid is the film? When we talk about these films, and I mentioned it before, these are as close as we get to live-action comic books in the fact that as the series goes along, the leaps in logic and the, um, what is it, the uh, disassociation from reality that you have to make with each of the films gets a little bit larger and a little bit larger. And then there are, you know, halo jumps with cars. There are flying cars. There are spaceship cars in this next film. Spoilers. Though I guess if you've watched the trailer, you know, you know that they're going into space. It just, it, it's how it is. So this rating is all about how stupid the film is and just how much you have to turn off your brain to enjoy it. So those are my kind of criteria. I hope I explained them well. And as we go along with each film, I'll be giving the ratings out of 10, because I believe 10 has a little bit more nuance into it than just out of five or thumbs up or thumbs down. Um... So look out for that with each entry. But without any further ado and with all the preamble out of the way, we're going to kick things off at number eight. And I think appropriately, at number eight, we have the eighth installment in the franchise, The Fate of the Furious, released in 2017. This film was directed by F. Gary Gray, making his debut in the director's seat uh, for the Fast and Furious franchise, having just come off of Straight Outta Compton. It was written by Chris Morgan, who is a long time scribe for the fast saga and this was the first post paul walker film we're gonna get into it 
as we go along here. But this was the first film after the send-off for um, for Brian O'Connor, the incredible, and we'll get into it, the incredible finale for and tribute to uh, Paul Walker's character in the franchise after he tragically passed away due to a car accident. And you really feel his absence in this film you know everybody talks about how Vin Diesel was is kind of like the godfather of these films he's the one that anchors everything and if Vin Diesel is in the film it's probably good Paul Walker was the heart as much as we want to put the light and shine that light onto Vin Diesel and others throughout the franchise for how you know much they've stayed with it and how much it has impacted not just their careers but also how much they've impacted the franchise. Paul Walker was there at the beginning, and the best films involve Paul Walker. It just it's just how it is, with one exception. But Paul Walker was such a grounding presence. He was the POV character of the first film and through most of the films. And so not having him in this film, you can feel his absence. And it's nobody's fault. It just, the way that it shakes out, this film is unfortunately worse off for not having him. Uh, this film just goes straight into the... Uh, ridiculousness of where the film is now having transitioned straight on into a a spy thriller caper film with very little actual street racing and mostly focused on all the drama that is Dominic Toretto versus the family Dom's gone rogue and he is going after the um god it's just it's hard to like keep all these straight to be honest with you, um, but they are getting involved with Mr. Nobody once again, and we are, who's played by Kurt Russell, father of Wyatt Russell, also the U.S. agent, um, and we get introduced to Little Nobody, who is Scott Eastwood, and is just bad. Just bad. Nothing against the guy, I'm sure he's cool, but they very transparently tried to bring him in to replace Paul Walker, and it just did not work. Um, alongside that not working, we also had a brand new villain played by Charlize Theron, who is incredible as an actress, but not very good in this, unfortunately. She plays the villain Cypher, who, uh, manipulates Dom into going against the family for reasons. Um, I'm gonna try to be as light on spoilers as possible if you haven't seen these films, or if you're planning on rewatching the films, or if you're planning on watching them for the first time. Um, I will mention things here and there, because I will be talking about my favorite scene, my favorite actor aspect of each film but i will try my best not to spoil it but if it happens i apologize but this is really honestly like the film kind of loses itself a lot this is the least like the original film um when it comes to the spirit and the heart of it and not just because paul walker isn't there but it's also you know this film has really kind of ducked into how ridiculous everything is you know at one point they are driving on a frozen on a giant frozen lake and the rock pushes a torpedo into another car like just pushes with his hand a torpedo into a car and it's like i get you know i get it and i'm gonna talk about this again later with a uh with a higher up uh entry on this list but 
when you have so much going on, it kind of dilutes everything. You know, uh, Syndrome said it best, when everyone is special, nobody is. And when it comes to the action and the um, the high-octane thrills that you expect out of a Fast and Furious film, uh, this film has too much. There's too much going on, and it just doesn't allow you to really process anything. And even after seeing it, I've now seen it twice. I I can't tell you a lot of what happened. Uh, shout out to Malcolm, Malcolm Russell Nelson, who is a regular contributor to the podcast and also a co-host on our book club segment every Friday. Uh, he told me when I was putting this list together, he was he said in his words, he said, Fate of the Furious is the worst film. It's the worst. And I disagreed with him at the time we were talking about it because I was going through and I very much intended for what's next up on this list as the worst on the in the series and as I continued to watch it I thought to myself no he's right he's right man it's bad like it just it doesn't even feel like it fits with a lot of the stuff you know besides the characters being the same besides you know the world more or less showing wear and tear from the series this feels like it could have been something completely different. And it is the progenitor to where the Hobbs and Shaw movie went, which is 100% stupid and just doesn't worry at all about anything having to do with cars. This is where it started. And granted, the Hobbs and Shaw prison break scene is the best scene in the film. It's my favorite part in the film. It's very cool. Watching them work together was awesome. But when you decide to take the one scene that they are um, very, admittedly, very good in and stretch it out and make it an entire two-hour film, that's when it just kind of falls by the wayside and you kind of, you lose, you get lost in the sauce there. And the film does a lot of things wrong. Um, it kills off a uh, long-standing character, which granted, she hadn't had a whole lot of, you know, important stuff to do in the last, you know, film. But... Still, the way that that person goes out um, doesn't sit well with me. Uh, the fact that a character gets forgiven for doing horrible things and essentially invited to the end of film barbecue at the end just doesn't doesn't sit well with me, and I don't like it. So, for all those reasons, uh, it is the worst film in the series for me. This is also the birthplace of the Vin Diesel versus uh, Rock the Dwayne Johnson feud that is squashed at this point, is not squashed, who knows, whenever you're listening to this, who knows, but uh, when it comes to the ratings, when it comes to the ratings for uh, the film, uh, when it comes to the fast rating, it is a 1 out of 10, the least like the original film, you really wouldn't even know that they're in the same franchise if you watch them back to back, it's such a huge leap in logic, and not just because of the quality of filmmaking. Uh, Furious, though, when it comes to the high-octane action, the testosterone, it is a full-on 6 out of 10. Uh, there is some really good action here. Like I said, the uh, prison break scene is fantastic uh, for what it is. But again, when it just comes, it was just hammering you with you know, action, 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 it doesn't give you time to process, which is unfortunate. But oh boy, when it comes to the stupid rating, this is a full-on 10 out of 10. The stupidity of this film is on 
high. If you are looking for a film to just shut your brain off and eat some popcorn too, you will have a good time with this. So that is why it is at the number eight spot for me as we move along to number seven, this being Fast and Furious or Fast and Furious 4. Uh, released in 2009, it was directed by Justin Lin. And it was written by Chris Morgan. This was them uh, coming back after the success in Tokyo Drift and getting to play with the original toys in the sandbox. And this was really a turning point for the series. This is where the uh, film started to kind of turn into something outside of what the original film was going for. Uh, This film, after... You know, having it kind of be the uh, Brian O'Connor show in the second film to having nobody from the original cast in the third film except for a brief uh, end of film cameo by Vin Diesel. This film brought everybody back. This brought back Brian and Dom, put them together to solve a murder as well as figure out where they've been this whole time. Uh, I will give this film something, though. Uh it gives us the debut, or I guess the re-debut, and kind of setting up the timeline for Han, who is the best character in the franchise, as well as uh, the giving us the debut of Giselle, played by Gal Gadot. Um, these characters are very important, as are their relationship, as is their relationship to each other further down the line. But this was the film that first put them on screen in the same film together. Uh, As I said, this does deal with the death of a major character. Uh, I'm just... I am going to give an addendum to my my disclaimer from earlier. I'm going to talk spoilers. I'm just going to do it. I think if you uh, haven't watched these films yet, then this might not be for you. But if you want to pause it, go watch the films and come back. That will be... What is that? Two plus that will be sixteen hours of your life <laughs> to uh, listen to this, you know, hour to two hour podcast. So I believe in you to make the right and appropriate choices for you. But Letty dies early on in this film, and most of the film is Dom and Brian trying to figure out how to avenge her, more or less. And the thing that sucks about this film is that this was the film where they tried to be like okay so we've done the fast and stupid stuff we are going to make this a gritty character piece and with the actors you have on hand no disrespect to them i they will make more money in their lifetimes or probably in one film than i will make in my lifetime but you you don't take actors of this caliber and try to give them a huge character piece. It just kind of results in everybody being sad the whole time. <laughs> being just down and sad and dour. And it doesn't have any of the charm of the other films before or after it. And it just makes it kind of a bummer to watch. This was the one that I was the least excited to rewatch. Because I remember, you know, the car chases were cool, but not really a you know, a fun time to be had. Um, The film itself isn't really anything special. Basically, Dom and Brian 
uh, reunite to deal with a Mexican drug cartel, and that's really it. Uh, we do get a very cool ending where um, Dom is being transported on a prison bus, and we see the cars all pulling up to rescue him, and that's where it cuts to be picked up with Fast Five. But um, beyond that, it's not really... It's, you know, the best parts of the beginning and the end to be honest. Uh, the opening scene, the ending scene, is really what it's about here. Uh, Giselle, played by Gal Gadot, is, is, very, is a very cool character, and she will come back, and she is a breath of fresh air. But you can tell that there's just something off here. Uh, Justin Lin hadn't quite gotten into the rhythm of what he wanted to do with these characters yet, and he was still kind of getting his feet wet when it came to that. So, when it comes to the ratings for this film, for Fast, how fast this film is, uh, I give it a 6 out of 10. It's probably, you know, the closest post-Tokyo uh, Drift to the original film and not just because it has the original players uh, involving you know some organized crime car chases and the like it's you know it's fairly similar lots of focus on cars lots of focus on the love of cars in it so six out of ten furious it is a six out of ten as well again they really tried to go with a character driven piece here to not so great uh, effect I think that this is a much better film if you take out the really sad dour parts um, but there is some good action here and there and the conflicts between Dom and uh, Brian are great to see because you know where they go over the course of the series and when it comes to stupid one out of ten not a whole lot of stupid to be found here and that's the unfortunate part of this is that you know, the stupid rating is a double-edged sword. In one hand, the leaps in logic you have to make can take you out of the film, but also they provide a lot of fun. And there is not a whole lot of fun to be found here, so 1 out of 10 for me. And that is why it is at the number 7 spot. But, to kind of, again, backtrack on my spoilers here, at least they didn't forgive someone who killed Han. I'm just gonna say it. Fast and Furious 8, Fate of the Furious... You forgave the Shaw brothers, who were the ones who were responsible for the death of Han and Giselle. Not cool. Not cool by me. Not ever going to be cool. So that is why both these films are at the bottom for me. At number six, we have Too Fast, Too Furious, released in 2003, directed by John Singleton. This was written by Gary Scott Thompson, the creator of the franchise, as well as Michael Brandt and Derek Haas. And this was the film that I think got me hooked, strangely enough, when I was a kid. This was, how old was I here? I was... 11 when this film came out and I was just taken up and how stupid it is and we'll get to it later but after the huge success the un just ridiculous success of two fa of uh, the original Fast and the Furious film uh, Universal greenlit a sequel but uh, Vin Diesel wasn't on board he was going off to make I believe Riddick or one of the films it, it was either Riddick or Triple X who knows but they scrambled to find a an actor who could match Paul Walker and could be his, you know, the Vin Diesel's contemporary. And they found Tyrese Gibson. Enter Roman Pierce, who is just a ball of fire and charisma in this film. He is uh, 
Brian O'Connor's childhood friend who got locked up in juvie, and the two have a very weird relationship, uh, but it is a very fun time. He's always just a blast to watch. He is just, like I said, a he's lightning in a bottle. He's charismatic, he's fun to watch, he's very stupid, and gets stupider as the series goes on, but in a fun way. And this also features the debut of Tej, played by Mr. Ludacris himself, wearing just the most ridiculous clothes with the most ridiculous hairstyles. Uh, Ludacris is a treasure in this film, and was apparently supposed to be the same character as Ja Rule's character from the original film, but Ja Rule didn't want to be in it, and so we have Tej. And I think it's better for it. Tej is a fantastic character. I think he's wonderful to watch, and where his character goes from this point forward in the series is awesome. Uh, You also get the setting of Miami, which is always a fun time, especially when you want to bring street racing and all that kind of stuff into it. Uh, Going from the streets of LA into Miami, there is just color everywhere. Nearly too much color, but lots of fun stuff. Um, My favorites probably out of the uh, out of the scenes in this is the streetcar scramble where they've got you know all the agents are like lined up with their cars outside of the garage all the doors fly open and the cars just like scatter all over the place. Such a fun Such a fun sequence, an incredible reveal, and I remember loving that scene to death. Uh, Brian O'Connor is pretty much the same character. He's just on the run. He gets a new love interest in Eva Mendez, and she's fine. She's there. She's she's an early 2000s love interest, which is to say bad. Um, And it's not her fault. It's just the writing of the character and the direction. It's just, it is what it is. But this film is everything that you would want out of a Vin Diesel-less Fast and Furious film that features Brian Connor. I have to make that distinction. But it's overall kind of ridiculous and not something that I would say is an ambassador for all the good things in the franchise. Uh, there's a lot of weird um, choices when it comes to the dialogue and the directing. Uh, it feels honestly kind of like a made-for-TV pilot of a uh, of a Paul Walker, Tyrese Gibson series, which I'm sure they would have spun it out if they could have at the time, but they didn't end up doing that. Uh, but it's a fun ride if you don't think too much. And speaking of which, going into the uh, ratings here, when it comes to uh, Fast, I give their Fast rating for Too Fast, Too Furious a 7 out of 10. Um, It's, again, featuring lots of cars, great car sequences. That garage uh, streetcar scramble is one of my favorite sequences in the entire series. And it's just a really good, fun time that feels like an elevation and escalation from all the car action from the first film uh it's furious rating is two because it's because it's it's too furious because it's you get it uh it's a two out of ten not a whole lot of uh of overly um not a whole lot of action here beyond all the car stuff a lot of it is just kind of uh Brian O'Connor and uh, Roman Pierce just kind of rolling around and punching each other when they first see each other. And beyond that, there's not a whole lot there. Uh, Character development is non-existent in these early films. It just, it is what it is. But when it comes to stupid, 8 out of 10. Not quite as stupid as The Fate of the Furious because you just, you can't get that stupid. But it is 
lots of fun, stupid time. Like I said, Roman Pierce is a breath of fresh air with the more straight-laced uh, Brian O'Connor, and it's just a good time. You might want to drink something while you're watching this, though. It might make it a little better. It did for me. As we head on into our top five here, in the number five spot, we have The Fast and the Furious from 2001. This is directed by Rob Cohen and written by Gary Scott Thompson and David Ayer, of all people. I know. I was surprised, too, when I found that out. I didn't realize this was written by David Ayer. But this is the film that started it all. This is the one that got us kicked off with this franchise. This is the film that introduced us to Brian O'Connor and to Dominic Toretto. Uh, This is Point Break with Cars. It just, it is what it is. You have to look at it. You have to be objective. They even... You know, the director, uh, Rob Cohen, along with Gary Scott Thompson and David Ayer, they envisioned this as Point Break with Cars. You know, Rob Cohen and uh, Paul Walker put this whole thing together. Vin Diesel was cast later. It was initially going to be Timothy Oliphant, which would have been amazing and terrible at the same time because you need a certain amount of Vin Dieselness to have a Dominic Toretto. Um, would be very interested in seeing that Earth 2 Timothy Oliphant-led uh, Fast franchise, though. That would be that would be interesting. But uh, this film really is just point break with cars. Uh, you have undercover cop uh, Brian O'Connor trying to figure out this DVD player stealing ring of car thieves uh this gang led by don toretto is just the most ridiculous and worst thieves i've ever seen in my entire life but this really was the kind of first of its kind in the modern era of the car porn film like if you are a fan of cars especially in the early 2000s this was your religion there were so many people that i knew growing up and you know throughout my childhood and into you know high school where they were like fast and furious is my uh it's my religion it's my identity and it's like i just you know you got to give it to it you got to give it its proper due for kicking off this entire franchise that has turned into something the original creators couldn't have come up with in their wildest dreams and it is a very low stakes but high dumb story (laughs) uh lots of fun action sequences uh lots of fun car racing and i mean diesel and walker are instant just instant chemistry you really buy their relationship you really buy the relationship between uh paul walker and jordana brewster or uh brian and mia immediately it's just it's a very fun movie to watch it hasn't aged particularly well but i mean most of these haven't you know pre-2010 but it's it's still a fun time and a good ride all the way through sometimes it's so 2000 it hurts but it's also in that way very cool to watch because obviously it feels and looks like it was made in 2001 it just does you can't get around it But in that way, you have a surprising lack of CGI stunt scenes in this film because the the, uh, technology just hasn't 
gotten up to that point where you could just sub everything out for CGI like you can in Fate of the Furious. So in that, there's a lot of practical stunt work, which is really cool. All the car scenes you actually see happen. They had to spend time putting up rigs and paying stunt performers. And it's there's something uh, really earnest in that way, where they are trying to make a movie that is that knows what it is in that way. It knows what it is, and it doesn't try to be anything else. And that's something that I think you can respect about that. So when it comes to uh, my, fa- my favorite thing in that film... I think the final race, the final race between um, Dom and O'Connor really just, it sells you on everything the film is supposed to be. You know, they're racing essentially for Dom's freedom. They're racing with these ridiculous cars in this road that is way too bumpy to be (laughs) a road you want to race on. And then the final sequence with the train, it's, it's just... It's dumb fun. It is dumb fun, and I really enjoy it. And when it comes to the ratings for this film, for Fast, I mean, you gotta you gotta give it as much as you can. And with the Fast rating, I give it a 9 out of 10. I know, I know, I know what you're thinking. But wait a second. Your, your whole thing was like with the Fast rating. It's how much it is like the first movie and how much the cars themselves were the focus on it. I get it. I get it. But with another film in this franchise, I I have to give this a 9 out of 10. It'll become clear later. Uh, when it comes to Furious, 3 out of 10. It is not trying to be a whole lot more than it is. <laughs> and that is all it is. And I respect the hell out of that. But... Not a whole lot of action outside of the cars when it comes to uh, stuff you can really sink your teeth into. You can't really remember a whole lot of the stuff outside of the cars and Vin Diesel's acting. So that is unfortunate. And when it comes to stupid, again, a modest, a small 3 out of 10. It's still trying to be grounded alongside having something called Race Wars as as an event that people just willingly go to and don't see a problem with. But... It is unequivocally the father of the entire Fast franchise, and you gotta give it its due when it comes to that. And now here we are, the cream of the crop. Pretty much from this point forward, it's all great films to me. And at number four, we have Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift from 2006. This was directed by Justin Lin with... uh, a screenplay by Chris Morgan. This was the birth of the Linnaissance. This is when Justin Lin came into the franchise alongside Chris Morgan and completely turned it on its head, starting with what was supposed to be a very different film and ended up becoming a reboot of sorts, as well as later on a spinoff of sorts. Uh, This was initially, I have to talk about this, this film was initially put together by Chris Morgan who came to the film as, you know, a screenwriter answering an open call for, you know, a new uh, a new Fast and Furious movie by Universal Pictures. And he came up with this idea of Vin Diesel in Tokyo learning how to drift and trying to solve a murder. And that being said, I have to give it up to the uh, the film's 
as a whole because this whole plot does come full circle when it comes to that. But uh, after they brought on director Justin Lin, who had just gotten done producing the and directing the fantastic Better Luck Tomorrow film, he looked at that film, said there were a lot of offensive shit about it, and he was going to change a lot of it. And this started off the partnership between Justin Lin and Chris Morgan that blossomed into the best films in the franchise. Now, this film also gives us the debut of one Han Solo, also known as Han Lu, played by Sun Kang, who is just the best character in the entire franchise. You can you can argue with me all you want, but that is not it's it's not up for debate it just you're wrong if you believe anything else um han is fantastic and the characters that are brought in here which are less than stellar feed into the greater overarching story of han in the franchise uh this one stars uh lucas black in the role of sean who is a very southern alabama boy who gets sent overseas to live with his father after a street racing accident to live in Tokyo and go to school. And like many films in the early to mid 2000s, Sean is straight up 25 years old and they are saying he is a 17 year old and it's just, it's bad. But during this, during his time at the, uh, in Tokyo going to school, he meets Twinkie played by Lil Bow Wow. And, their partnership is so fun. Like I, I have heard, and I, you know, watching it, I have, I do have to admit, um, Lucas Black's acting is a little stilted here, a little stilted, a little stiff. But this film also gave us drifting, man, and the drifting in this film is just top notch. It is some of the best driving sequences in the entire franchise. Um, Getting into it, some of the incredible stuff that went into this film, Justin Lin really wanted to film in Shibuya, which is one of the big cities in uh, in Japan, but he couldn't get the permits and he couldn't get the uh, rights, paperwork and legal stuff to film there. So he just said, fuck it, we're doing it anyway. And they <laughs> went. And they went into Shibuya and they just started filming these street race scenes and the cops of course, and in an interview, he said something like, oh, the cops are so polite, they'll wait at least 10 minutes before they come and get you. Apparently, unbeknownst to Lynn, Universal Pictures had set up a fall guy to talk to the cops whenever they would get you know close to them filming and be like, hey, I'm the director. And so the, he would have to spend the night in jail anytime they arrested him so that they could continue to film. It's just ridiculous in the most guerrilla warfare guerrilla filming way and i respect the hell out of it um this also features probably the best anime storytelling in the entire franchise i mean i i said it on twitter um tokyo drift is one of the best anime films i've ever seen it is so very clearly an anime sports movie that you just you can't ignore it you know you have the main character who comes into this unknown you know unknown society and unknown world that he's unfamiliar with and he learns about this art that everyone is you know super skilled at in this case it's drifting this character this main character is you know plucky and a little bit sarcastic and a little quippy but he sucks at 
what everybody is good at. So we get to see him learn the craft of drifting. And we get to see him practice it. We get to see him learn about the culture. We get to see him get further and further into the world. And it's just so good. The way that they come up with is this was the first good movie in the franchise. That is, that is actually treated like a movie and not just an advertisement for cars or a ripoff of Point Break. And the way that they, the way that they're able to, you know, give us this experience of having this character who admittedly isn't the strongest character in the series, but having him being taken under the wing of Han, being introduced to this whole, you know, Japanese underworld and dealings with the Yakuza is very, very cool. And we get not one, but two separate montages. You know how much I love my montages and you know how much I love my sports movies. And this is right up my alley. It's fantastic. And also it was the first movie to really raise the stakes halfway through han gets killed in this film as we go along we find out that it wasn't just an accident but in this film han is killed after colliding with another car during a very intense race basically trying to escape decay also one of the best villains in the franchise and also a terrible person uh and you immediately, this was the first film to be like, oh, shit, this isn't just about racing. Like, this is a big deal. And granted, you know, in the first film, Jesse was killed, but I didn't give I didn't give a shit about Jesse. Who cared about Jesse? Raise your hand if you cared about Jesse in the first film. And I, you didn't. You know you didn't. You're lying if you raise your hand. Killing Han was a huge, like, oh, my God kind of moment where it's like, okay, where do we go from here? He was our connection to everything. And... On top of that, he was Sean's mentor. So it's already doing all of the best anime tropes to tell a fantastic story. And as it goes, when it, you talk about the film, when you talk about the entire series, the importance to the fast saga that Tokyo Drift has in retrospect is huge. This should be at least in your top five just for the importance to the franchise for this. But it is a fantastic film. It's a ton of fun to watch. I rewatched it. The soundtrack is also hilarious. It is almost uh, painfully mid-2000s, but it also has one of the best songs that I just I can listen to on repeat forever, and that being Six Days by DJ Shadow, the remix. So good. So good. Um, it is just, it's, it's such a fun time and it's one of my favorite movies. It was going to be my favorite movie in the franchise rewatching this again after, you know, going through watching it. I was like, there's no way this isn't like in the top one or two, but like, as, as you can see at number four, it's got some stiff competition. So when it comes to the ratings for this, when it, when you talk about fast, the fast, rating for this it's a 10 out of 10 for me cars are the focus here you learn about a style of racing you learn about drifting the importance to the culture you get to see the tokyo racing scene you get to watch sean develop and hone this skill the final i'm just gonna say the final battle if we're sticking with the anime theme here the final battle is on a is on a mountain at night. That is the most anime shit that you have ever seen. Um, it's it's fantastic. And again, the focus is on the cars. It really... This is the film where the racing and the cars are the most important out of the entire franchise. When it comes to Furious, I'd give it a three. It's got 
granted not as much testosterone as you would expect for a fast and furious film but tons of character development lots of fun characters to latch on to and it's just a good time with a great setting and then when it comes to stupid i'd also give it a three it's still one of the it's still one of the more grounded films you know the first four films i would say comprise the more grounded era of this uh, franchise and as we would go along um, it would just get more ridiculous as time went on but it's still lots of fun lots of ridiculous shit to be had and overall just one of my favorite entries in, in the entire franchise so that is why it is at number four at number three now Number three and number two, I went back and forth on a lot, and they were the last ones I locked in on on this list for this episode. But at number three, after going through both films, rewatching them again, I put Furious 7 at number three from 2017. This was directed by James Wan and written by uh, Chris Morgan. This is... The premise of it essentially is a revenge film. Uh, This introduced us to Deckard Shaw, the brother of Owen Shaw, who we will get to. uh, Basically trying to hunt down Dom's, you know, chosen family after putting uh, Owen Shaw into a coma and and into a hospital bed because of the events of the prior film. Uh, This was also a revenge film for... Dominic Toretto, basically trying to get revenge on uh, Deckard Shaw for killing Han, which we, again, find out was the reason that Han died in Tokyo Drift. And let's just let's just address the elephant in the room. This is also the send off for Paul Walker. Uh, Paul Walker, unfortunately, passed away due to a car accident midway through production on this film. Production was shut down for a time to give not just the cast and crew time to grieve, but also to figure out how to rework the film. And they, the film that was um, eventually released was not the same film that they began making when they started off the whole process. And it is hard to judge a film by its intentions when it comes to something as deeply personal and real as the death of one of its principal actors. You know, they talk about, you know, the concept and almost to a meme level of, uh, of repetition, you know, the idea of family, 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 la familia, all that stuff. But the cast and crew of that really were a family and the loss of Paul Walker was felt not just in this film, but subsequent films. And it is incredibly unfortunate that that happened. And it is in no disrespect at all that I'm putting this film, you know, not at the number one spot, because I think this was, this film was as perfect a send off to Brian O'Connor and more importantly, Paul Walker that you could ask for. Um, but, that being said, the film isn't as strong as the other two films when you take that out. Uh, the con- There are really good things about the film. I love the idea that, you know, James Wan comes in uh, with his horror background and his uh, proclivity for ensemble pieces and really, like, sticks to his guns when it comes to this. The directing is great. Uh, the writing is as ridiculous as you can expect when it comes to the Fast and Furious franchise at this point. It also brings us up to modern day with Tokyo Drift, with uh, 
basically four through six being prequels to Tokyo Drift and this film bringing us full circle and giving us the uh, other side of that scene at the end of Tokyo Drift where Sean, after being crowned the Drift King, uh, is approached by Vin Diesel wanting to talk about Han. So um, lots of really good stuff out of this film. This is kind of the one that elevated the film from where it was at into the spy caper thriller category uh there's also a distinct lack of uh agent hobbs rock the dwayne johnson as we discussed earlier uh who made his debut two films earlier and is really only in the beginning and the end of this film due to his uh conflicting uh film scheduling but uh this film as a whole out of the top three is probably the weakest due to the fact that this film isn't really focused on anything, at least the film that was delivered to audiences. Um, The film itself doesn't have a whole lot of legs to stand on outside of the tribute to Paul Walker. Uh, Rewatching it, I had fun with it. Rewatching it, it was, uh, the set pieces were fantastic. There was a lot of uh, new stuff that they brought into her. This was the debut of Mr. Nobody and the idea that Dom and his family are being recruited into this like spy war uh so that's cool like i said the set pieces were fantastic they went to abu dhabi um all over the world just globe trotting ridiculousness uh and the battle between deckard shaw and dom toretto is a is worth a film in itself that being said as a you know again talking about what the film was intended to be versus what it delivered on i don't think the um promise of the premise was achieved as much here deckard shaw is not as good a villain as owen Shaw and I will just I'll say it I'll say it he just he isn't um he is a guy who just kind of pops in and out of scenes and just like messes stuff up and really him being supposed you know supposed to be this like you know black ops you know murdering psychopath doesn't really play as well as I think it should have and when you get somebody like Jason Statham to you know, to play this role. Initially, he was supposed to play Owen Shaw in Fast and Furious 6, but I think there was, like, scheduling conflicts or whatever, so they brought him in for this one. It it really, you don't get to see, you know, Deckard Shaw at his best in this film, which, again, is something that Fate, and the Furious, or Fate of the Furious did for Shaw as a character, making him a little bit more well-rounded, but as a villain, he is a little one-dimensional here. He's cool, don't get me wrong. His The opening scene of this film featuring, like, his intro scene is one of the coolest scenes in the entire franchise. Like, it is ridiculous, him just in the hospital and him talking to his unconscious brother and he walks out and you just see the devastation in that entire building. It's wild. But... The film that starts off as like, oh, we're hunting Deckard Shaw or we're hunt, you know, Deckard Shaw is hunting the family and they're he is going after them for revenge, gets really bogged down by this God's eye stuff. And it just I could not have cared less about the God's eye stuff. If they have just focused it on Deckard Shaw, trying to pick off the uh, fast family one by one would have made the film a hundred percent better. Uh, there's also, this is the first film that I really watched in the series. And I was like, 
I think there's too much going on here. Like we talk about with each film, you know, I've talked about my favorite, you know, pieces from each film. I don't, did I talk about my favorite part of Tokyo Drift? My favorite part of Tokyo Drift, if I didn't already mention it, um, is just the montages and him learning to become a good Drift King. Anyway, back with Furious 7. Um, each film has kind of its, you know, its hallmark moment. And not in that, like, oh, it's uh, something you can stick on a, on a greeting card. But it's, like, the thing that you remember the film for. You know, for the first one... It's not just race wars, but also the final race between uh, Dom and Brian. Too Fast, Too Furious, it's the streetcar scramble. Tokyo Drift, already said it, it's the montages as well as the final battle on the mountain. Uh, With 4, it's the race, initially for me, it's the race between uh, Dom and Brian in the middle of the film, as well as the ending, and then... As we go along, I'll talk about my favorites for the other one. But there is so much going on in this film. It is almost incomprehensible. There is a whole sequence where they are parachuting their cars off a mountain that goes into a you know, retrieval mission to try and get Ramsey, who also makes her debut in this and is fantastic. She's great. Um, that goes into, like... You know, this bus that's transporting them is also like a tank, and it's also like you gotta outrun these people, and you gotta tumble your car down, and it's a race down the mountain between Vin Diesel and Jason Statham. It's just, there's a lot going on. You know, it is bombastic, it is loud, and you will not feel your face after watching this film, Um, but for me nothing feels special it just feels like okay they're obviously able to do this and there isn't a point where i'm like worried the only person and i remember what when i was watching it for the first time the only person that i was worried about throughout the film was brian o'connor like that was the he was the only character because i didn't know what they were going to do with the character now that paul walker was gone and i wasn't sure what they were going to do with him until the end of the film which is my favorite part of the film. It's the favorite part of a lot of people, I think, was this tribute to not just not just the character, but the actor, to Paul Walker himself. You know, them on the beach, them essentially saying, you know, things are going to be different, Vin Diesel getting up, and they have the whole, like, um, oh, I'm going to tear up thinking about it. It made me cry in the, in the theater, and I teared up, you know, re-watching it for this episode. Um but him saying, you know, it's 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 never a goodbye. Not really. And, you know, seeing Brian off in the distance playing with playing with little Jack and Mia and then just the montage of, you know, the moments, it, basically a music video to to see you again um, as Vin Diesel has his voiceover. It walks all the way up to the line of breaking the fourth wall and being too cheesy and stands right on that line. And on that line, it's perfect. It is the perfect send-off for the character. It's the perfect send-off for the actor. It's the perfect send-off for this era of Fast and Furious to complete this trilogy. Um, of films I have I have my like trilogy in mind of like the first four films are essentially their own you know quadrilogy or whatever you want to call it and then you have five six and seven which are their own trilogy and then we have eight nine and whatever the tenth film is going to be this 
ending to this film where they're driving together. We get the CGI Paul Walker, who is for the first time in the series, not driving a blue car, but instead driving a white car because it's symbolic. You know, the two of them drive away and we follow, uh, uh, we follow Brian's car all the way out into the sunset as he drives off. I just, it's perfect. It's perfect. It really, it genuinely is perfect. And I could not ask for a better ending to that film. But when it comes to the ratings of this film, uh, when it comes to fast five out of 10, I would say, um, there's some car stuff and there's, you know, a, very cool scene in Abu Dhabi where they're, you know, cars don't fly, where they go from, you know, basically, you know, jumping from or between three buildings, which is fun. Um, but the this is where the film and really the franchise as a whole really starts to go into that spy caper territory. And I really wish they had just stuck with the heist stuff personally. Um, but it is what it is. This is where the film franchise is now, and I think they know how to make good good stories in this realm. When it comes to Furious, it's 7. Furious 7. I'm not doing this on purpose, but 7 out of 10 for when it comes to Furious. Uh, not a whole lot of character development per se, ex- with the exception of, um, of Brian kind of giving him the send-off that he needed. And, um, I mean, the, the final fight is all of, you know, they, Justin, or, um, James Wan obviously learned from Justin Lin's anime tendencies and had the final fight between two dual wielding swordsmen (laughs) at the top of this parking garage. It's ridiculous. It's dumb. And speaking of which, going into the stupid rating, uh, eight out of 10, it's, 8 out of 10 stupid. Uh, it's not quite as stupid as um, as Fate of the Furious, and it's just, I would say, a hair more stupid than Too Fast, Too Furious. Um, but at one point, Dom, Dom has these lines in this movie, okay? You know, he when they find the car in Navi Davi, he's like, you know, you should never cage up a beast. And then when they're, like, when they're getting ready to drive the car out, he's like, time to unleash the beast. <laughs> and then later on, you know, they have like the street fight where it's like, you know, uh, Deckard Shaw makes the first line where he's like, do you think this is going to be a street fight? And then like later on, Vin Diesel calls back to it where he's like, do you think this is going to be a street fight? You're damn right it is. And they have that fight, that anime fight with the dual wielding swords. And then when the, um, when the, the drone destroys the underneath of the parking garage and you know all the cracks are forming where they're standing and <laughs> he has this line dom toretto just goes think about street fights the street always wins and he stomps the ground and it causes the gravity of deckard shot to break it's ridiculous it's so dumb in the best comic booky way this is when you know, Dom Tretto and the rest of the family legit became superheroes, at least like MCU level heroes on the level of like a Black Widow or a Hawkeye, like or a Captain America. It's it's so dumb. But like, again, there is fun to be had here. But it has been eked out by two other films, the first of which at the number two spot is Fast and Furious 6, or as Justin Lin wanted to title it, Furious 6. From 2013, this was directed by Justin Lin and written by Chris Morgan once again. 
And this film, in essence, is a is a couple things. It's a rescue film while also being a team V team film. Uh, this film is what introduced us to Owen Shaw played by Luke Evans. Also the best villain in the franchise so far and completely unredeemable. I don't care what you want to tell me franchise, you know, fast and furious franchise. Owen Shaw and Deckard Shaw are not heroes. They will never be heroes. You cannot redeem them. Anyway, my personal feelings out aside here this featured the return of letty after being killed off in fast and furious 4 or just fast and furious um but also this film was the direct follow-up to uh to fast five and it was a perfect follow-up to fast five uh if you want to take you know the um the trilogy as it the trilogies as they were released like one through three is a trilogy four through six is a trilogy and so on and so forth um this fits as a as an almost pitch perfect ending to the series fast six you know fast and furious could have ended here at fast and furious six um and that kind of feeds into the dynamic of team versus team. You know, the premise of this is there is a team out there doing jobs that the Fast Five team does, but on a global scale. And now they've been kind of swept up because Letty is now on this team. And even though I love that idea, and I think that it was, you know, having Owen Shaw being kind of like the younger faster more deadly version of dom um i don't think it really it really um uh it didn't pay off for the promise of the premise uh it didn't really um didn't really give us everything we got a you know counterpoint for dom but everybody else on the team is just kind of everybody else you know they make a joke like oh man this person looks like me or this person looks like you but like outside of that there's nothing really to do there which is unfortunate and i think they could have done better this is your classic you know avengers versus masters of evil kind of deal that you really anytime that that happens it is a big deal because they have characters who counteract each other and though the premise of this was that i don't think that they executed it as well that being said we got the greatest love story in the entire fast and furious saga which is han and giselle after them coming together in fast five the two of them are just doing amazing stuff around the world there's this great scene that intros them where they're like held at gunpoint and they're like at a cafe and they got their guns outstretched when uh agents roll in it's very cool watching them develop and also you know han come to grips with his love for giselle them talking about going you know and living in tokyo after this job and you know living their lives together all culminates with giselle's death in the final sequence which is heartbreaking and causes my boy han to go back to tokyo solo which in you know, basically leads into his death during Tokyo Drift or his possible death. Spoilers. Uh, but the film itself is very fun. The film, you know, all my problems that I had with Deckard Shaw are 
non-existent here. Owen Shaw is a fantastic villain, manipulating Letty at every turn. There's some great set pieces here. You get to see, you know, that tank sequence is fantastic. You know, the final runway sequence, which is probably my favorite part right up there with the ending, which I'm going to talk about in a second. It is, there's tons of stuff. There's this great, you know, this is where they start to kind of lose track with reality. <laughs> um, this is where the more ridiculous stuff starts to come out, but it's still grounded enough to be like, okay, I could see how that could plausibly happen. It's not likely, but it's plausible. Um, and then we get that, again, that incredibly ridiculous runway sequence at the end with a, had to be like 30 miles long runway. <laughs> but that being said, the choreography, the way everything is framed is really cool. We get to see Hobbs and uh, Dom team up against uh, against Shaw and the giant-ass guy, uh, which was really cool. We got to see Giselle and Han be badasses together. We got to see the tragedy of Giselle. Um, it's just a great film, a great follow-up to Fast Five, and really kind of puts that focus once again on family and the idea of family, while at the same time trying to rescue and restore a an amnesiac and almost brainwashed Letty. Very cool, lots of good stuff, and it has the best ending in the franchise, period. Uh, we get this nice moment where at the end they're back at the house from the Fast and the Furious 1, they have settled back in. All is good in the world. Uh, Han is heartbroken after the death of Giselle, so he goes to Tokyo. We get the title sequence, and then we get a mid credit sequence that calls back to Tokyo. And we get the reveal that the death of Han was not an accident. As a car rams into Han's, flips it over, the car is like ready to blow, and you see Jason frickin statham get out of the car flips open his phone and says dominic toretto you don't know me but you will and he like you know the car blows up behind him and it's just like oh no there are problems just so good i love the ending perfect ending 10 out of 10 ending for that but when it comes to the ratings here uh Fast rating, 6 out of 10. Lots of cool car segments, lots of cool car moments, but it's not, this is where you really get the feeling in the film or in the franchise where it's like, okay, we're not focusing on the cars anymore. We're, we're doing something else here now. A Furious rating, 9 out of 10. Lots of character development, a fantastic villain, tons of testosterone. Testosterone out the absolute ass. Um... Also, lots of great action outside of the cars. The final sequence is all just fist fights and just throwing people around. It's great. Really, really cool stuff. When it comes to stupid, 6 out of 10. Not quite as stupid as Furious 7 or Fate of the Furious, but it's a little bit more stupid than Fast 5 or really any of the films that had come before it. Uh, there is ridiculousness to be had here, but at the heart of it, it is very much a film focused on trying to patchwork the family dynamic back together but it is not the best film in the franchise there's only one film here and if you know anything about me you probably knew this was going to be at the top it's fast five at number one uh released in 2011 directed by justin lynn and with uh a screenplay by chris morgan this is the heist film you know how much i love heist films heist heist films are probably 
you know, besides obviously superhero films and uh, probably samurai films, uh, is up there with my favorite style of film genre. Um, I love heist films to death. They are legit. Just I, I get glued to them. I am always down to watch a heist film and this is where the franchise turned from a street racing franchise into a heist franchise um it was really only a heist franchise for one and maybe a half movies but you get to see this evolution this almost natural evolution and progression of the series into something else uh this also has a wonderful thing that all heist films have which is the sequence of bringing the team together probably my favorite part alongside the actual heist um we get to see characters from the franchise's past be brought together for the first time this is the thing that i love in storytelling when you tell things for you know long form storytelling is continuity i love continuity i love world building i love lore this film gives you all of that wrapped up into two hours of high octane goodness uh this brought back roman pierce and tej from the second movie this brought back han from the third movie and the fourth movie it brought back giselle also from the fourth movie and we got to really get to work we also got the debut of luke hobbs as well as elena and the two of them work really well together. Elena and Dom are not quite the same match as Dom and Letty, but at least pre, uh, uh, pre death of Letty, I think they work. They have a little bit more chemistry. But it's so just, it's fantastic. And it's a heist in Rio de Janeiro. Like, this was the first time that the main crew really went to, like, a destination spot in the world. And they wanted to pull off this heist for this just terrible guy. Not the best villain. Not by a long shot, admittedly. But this also featured the... You know, the last real focus, at least that I can think of, of practical FX and stunt work. Um, and there's something I just, I, the first time that I really noticed the little disclaimer that's like, these these films were, you know, produced with uh, stunt coordinators and skilled drivers. And it's just, it's cool to just see that. Because you know that on some level, stuff was real. And that's something that I think the the last two movies in the franchise have kind of lost, especially, like I said, Fate of the Furious, um, you don't really get that feeling that the that anybody's in real danger here. But in Fast Five, people are in danger because you know that things are going down. People are not going to, you know, come out of this the same way that they went in. Uh, this film also features the best character development for Dominic Toretto. Uh, there's been a long-running joke that Dominic Toretto is the same in The Fast and the Furious that he is all the way up to Fate, Fate of the Furious. I would disagree. This film is where he learned about family. Yes, he mentioned it before. Yes, you know, you can say it was a focus, but this is the film that it became the focus. They have a line when they reunite with uh, Vincent, one of Dom, Dom's old crew from back in the first film and the one who outed uh, Brian and immediately knew he was a cop um, where he, you know, gets mad at uh, Dom and basically says, you know, you don't trust people, you know, all this stuff, basically telling him like, 
you only trust yourself and your family, which is him and Mia, basically. And he's like, you need to learn to trust people. And so we see over the course of this film, him learning to let go, him learning to um, trust another people, him learning to grow his family outside of just him and Mia and potentially uh potentially Brian as well. Uh, this does also follow up on the awesome ending for Fast and Furious or Fast 4, uh, where they break him out of the prison bus using their using only their cars. And it's just, you know, this is where Dom went from, like, the, the rebel without a cause to, like, wise sage Dominic Toretto, always spouting off lines that are just the most ridiculous, talking about family. But... This film in itself, I think, is the perfect blend of phase one and phase two of this franchise, where it takes all of the street racing stuff from the first phase and some of the more ridiculous stuff from the second phase and perfectly blends them together. Uh, This also gives us Han and Giselle meeting for the first time. This is the birth and the origin story of their love. We get a great scene with them at the end. This also has a fantastic... You could take this film by itself... And with no context for anything before or after this, stand alone, and it has a complete story from beginning to end. You can argue that with me. Watch the film. Watch it. Watch no other Fast and Furious films. Just watch this, and you will get a complete story within the two-hour runtime. It is a fantastic story uh, that also gives us one of the best endings in the series and gives us some more foreshadowing as well where uh, Han and Giselle are driving in the car and they're like, you know, oh, where do you want to go next? And he's like, oh, you know, let's go, you know, I think he said like Brazil or something like that. And she's like, I thought you wanted to go to Tokyo. And he said, we'll get there eventually. And it just like chills, chills. I love it. It's almost fourth wall breaking, but it's it's good. I really, really dig it. So when it comes to the ratings here, this is the best spread that I could ask for. When it comes to fast, eight out of 10, Lots of car shenanigans. The heist with the cars at the end is incredible. The use of the cars in this. There's a whole you know montage of them trying to use cars to uh, or trying to learn how to get a car fast enough to pull off this heist. Wonderful stuff. Eight out of ten. Furious also an eight out of ten. Could possibly argue it for being a nine out of ten just based on the fact that the only character development Dom's ever gotten has been in this film, but. Lots of character development, wonderful characters, some out of uh, some out of the car action as well. Lots of thrills, lots of spills, lots of chills, and I absolutely love it. And when it comes to stupid, also a fairly good rating, five out of ten. Perfectly, like I said, perfectly balanced as all things should be, with all of the grounded, gritty realness of the first four movies, with some of the more ridiculous aspect of the latter movies. And honestly. The film in itself is a perfect distillation of what the Fast and Furious movies are. If someone wants to know, hey, what are these movies about? Like, I've never watched any of them. Give them Fast Five, and you will give them everything that they need to know about this franchise. It is complete. It's comprehensive. It's a masterpiece. And I absolutely think it deserves its spot at the number one at the top of the mountain when it comes to the Fast and Furious franchise. And as we look ahead to Fast 9 coming out this Friday, as of this recording, I cannot wait to get back behind the wheel with Dom Toretto and the whole family. 
And looking back on the series from 20 years ago, you know, watching its humble beginnings in 2001 with just two guys fighting over DVD players, all the way to 20 years later, the Fast and Furious franchise has built a legacy one quarter mile at a time. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week. Whether at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, or however you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we've got to take a look back at last week's books with the Geek Explained Pick of the Week of last week. And though I gotta give props to Planet Size X-Men number one by Jerry Duggan and Pepe Larraz, my pick is had to be Nightwing number 81, written by Tom Taylor, art by Bruno Redondo. It's just a fantastic book. It is so good. There is a moment in that book where I legit teared up. It was the doc scene. If you've read the issue, you know what I'm talking about. It's wonderful. It's an excellent book that has some pretty big implications for stories going forward in the life of Dick Grayson. You should be reading this book. You should be reading this series. Get on it. But that's last week's books. Let's talk about this week's books. We got four, eight, 12, 13 books. Once again, lots of books to talk about. So let's go ahead and dive into it. First off, kicking things off with Teen Titans Academy number four, written by Tim Sheridan with art by Steve Lieber. This brings us to the Bat Pack. I'm very excited about this. This is continuing on the mystery of who is Red X, and we've got three daring troublemakers who are out to solve the case. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The Bat Pack in X marks the spot. Who is Red X? The students of Titan Academy want to know, and they want to know now. After the infiltration of the school by the Suicide Squad, three unlikely students launch their own investigation into the mysterious figure's true identity and motivation. What they find is shocking and surprising, if any of it is actually true. So I like that they're essentially like setting up different factions within the within Titans Academy, having the cast, having an extended cast and being able to focus on different portions of them is why books like Legion of Superheroes, Teen Titans and books like that really succeeded. So I like that they're continuing on that trail with this and I'm interested to learn who Red X is. So very excited to pick this up. Next up we have Wonder Woman number 774. This is written by Jordi Belair and Becky Cloonan and Michael Conrad with art by Andy McDonald and Paulina Ganeshow. Now, this is continuing on the uh, Diana dealing with lots of stuff. Uh, (laughs) uh, She just escaped Asgard, and she has come back to the realm of her gods to find it in ruins. So I'm very excited about this. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Olympus has fallen. With the kingdom of the gods in ruins, Wonder Woman finds that only two remain, wounded and abandoned by one of their own. The rest of the Olympians are dead, and now it's up to Diana to travel to the graveyard of the gods to recover their souls. Seems like even in the afterlife, there is no rest for our hero. 
Will she ever be able to take her rightful place in the Greek pantheon, or is she doomed to roam the realm for the rest of eternity? Meanwhile, in Diana's past, our young hero comes into contact with man's world for the first time. After deciding to read one of the missing texts, she becomes enamored with the story it tells. Now, her teacher Cleo must bring the princess back to reality or lose her pupil for good. So I've talked about it before, I'm more interested in the main story, not so much in the backup, but still quality content from all of the creators here. Very, very good stuff. Next up, we have Action Comics number 1032. This is written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, Becky Cloonan, and Michael Conrad with art by Michael Avon Oming and Daniel Sampier. Um, this has been great so far. I've really, really dug Philip Kennedy Johnson's era. Uh, I love Warworld. You know how much I love Warworld and Mongol. And I'm still not really given a shit about Midnighter. I'm sorry. I would love to rank this higher in my, you know, in my excitement levels, but I just don't care about this Midnighter story. I'm sorry. But the Warworld Rising is very, very good. I'm really enjoying that. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. War World Rising, Part 3, slash The Passenger, Part 4. As the Superman family fights to keep the mysterious refugees alive, they find shocking answers about their lost colony. Meanwhile, Atlantis faces destruction by a host of supernaturally powerful sea kaiju, apparently created by the newfound War World Fragment. As other world governments come to understand the devastating power Atlantis now possesses, tensions rise and the threat of global war looms closer. As this goes on, back in Metropolis, the time-flung version of Midnighter digs deeper into Trojan's dirty scheme. So again, I know that this is all going to kind of uh, connect at the end, but I just, I don't care about this Midnighter stuff. But you're getting some Superman-Aquaman team-up, which I'm very excited about. Next up, we have a Hellfire Gala tie-in, that being Way of X number 3. This is written by Simon Spurrier with art by Bob Quinn. And Way of X has been great so far, and I've been loving, love, love, loving the Hellfire Gala. I'm very excited to continue the story forward, especially with Drunk Kurt. Drunk Kurt has been incredible in this story, <laughs> and I'm excited to see more with him. So let's go ahead and dive into this synopsis here. Make more mutants. It's the Hellfire Gala hangover. Nightcrawler tries to root out the evil, working to destroy Krakoa by investigating all its laws, starting with sexy saxophone solo. I don't know what that means, and I love it. I'm very excited about this. Should be a good time for sure. Next up, we have Batman Superman number 19. That means there's only three more issues after this. Blah. Very sad about that. Uh, written by Jean Lun Yang with art by Derek Robertson and Emanuela Lupacino, as well as Kyle Hotz and Steve Lieber. I have been loving this series. I think it's really good. I think it's a shame that DC isn't giving it the time that it should be giving it, but... Who knows, man? I I really do think that this is one of DC's strongest books right now, and it's a shame that they're getting rid of it. But let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. 
to thwart the apocalypse cascading across multiple realities, Batman and Superman must join forces with their counterparts and sojourn to strange lands. The world of the night and the world of tomorrow are not the only two creations crafted by the sinister auteur.io, and this nefarious cybernetic despot is hellbent on at last crafting his own twisted notion of utopia. Join a list of all-star artists as we tour through the Archive of Worlds. So that sounds awesome. Looks like we're going to be getting a lot of different alternate Batman and Superman. Um, this cover is really fun. It's just Western versions of Batman and Superman. I'm very excited to pick this up. Should be a good time. Next up, we have another Hellfire Gala tie-in, that being Wolverine number 13, written by Benjamin Percy with art by Scott Eaton. And uh, last we saw of Logan, he was fighting with Deadpool to keep him from entering into the gala. So I am looking forward to seeing how they pay this off. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Hellfire Compromise. Can Wolverine and X-Force keep the peace, or is the gala doomed? So there's lots of stuff going on. This is essentially spinning out of the events of the uh, X-Force tie-in. So this is going to continue on that train. There's also some other nonsense going on with uh, the Kotati. So um, looking forward to this for sure. Next up, we have Robin number three. This is written by Joshua Williamson with art by Gleb Melnikov. And I have been digging it so far. I've been really enjoying it. I don't think that the characterization of Damien is quite right, but I'm very excited to continue on with this tournament and we're getting a big old spotlight on our boy connor hawk which i am very excited about let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here new friends it's a beach party from hell robin's mission to get to the heart of the league of lazarus's inner workings has left him once again locked in combat with his fellow fighters but never did damien wayne think it would lead to a beach blanket cookout what's more dangerous than a life-or-death struggle for the all-or-nothing prize of immortality well for Damien, it's acting like a normal teenager for five minutes. And don't miss the surprise confrontation with Damien's number one competition, a mysterious fighter trained by the League of Shadows. So yeah, uh, Connor Hawk is going to be making an impression, which I'm very excited about. Looking forward to picking this up. Next up, we have Fantastic Four Life Story number two. This is written by Mark Russell with art by Sean Izakse, and I really dug the first issue. I think that this, you know, again, Fantastic Four is the perfect outlet for this life story style format, and I'm very excited to see what the next decade has in store for them. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The story of the Fantastic Four's lives in real time continues. Set in the 1970s, the heroes struggle to find their role in a rapidly changing world. Sue continues to fight for social causes, while Reed becomes increasingly obsessed with preparing for the impending arrival of Galactus, creating tension within the Four. So, looks like we're jumping into the 1970s, and I am very excited. Looking forward to picking this up. Ah, love the life story format. Next up, we have Superman number 32. I believe this is the final Superman book before we jump into Superman Son of Kal-El. So, 
It's a little sad. It's a little sad, but I'm very excited to pick this up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Oh, it is also written by Sean Lewis and Philip Kennedy Johnson with art by Scott Godlewski and Sammy Bosry. Now, let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis here. The One Who Fell, Part 3, slash Tales of Metropolis, Redemption. The End of the One Who Fell. Superman and Superboy were duped by the old divide-and-conquer routine, which is especially dangerous on a faraway planet where you can't tell who your enemy is. As the Shadowbreed makes their big move, Superman discovers what happened to the friend who originally sent the distress beacon that lured him and his son across the galaxy. Let's just hope it's not an answer that came too late. Elsewhere, back home on Earth, Jimmy Olsen leads his misfit team on the hunt for the sinister projectress. So, I don't think I've really loved the Tales of Metropolis so far. Um, I really enjoyed the first instance, and then it's just kind of steadily gone down. Kind of similar to the Wonder Woman book. I'm not in love with it, but I'm really enjoying the main story in this book, and I'm looking forward to picking this up. Next up, we have a big one for Marvel, that being Heroes Return number one. This is written by Jason Aaron with art by Ed McGinnis, and this is concluding the Heroes Reborn story. Um with all-out war, essentially. <laughs> the Squadron Supreme, who are really starting to realize that the world has been changed, are now being uh, drawn into open battle by these new upstart Avengers. And I'm excited to see where this goes. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. An epic oversized slugfest between the Squadron Supreme and an otherworldly group of Avengers for the final fate of the whacked-out world of Heroes Reborn. Simple, sweet, to the point. Uh, really just tells you all you need to know. This is going to be a big old battle. I'm very excited to see how this wraps up. Uh, we're also, I'm assuming, going to get an answer on how this whole world came to be. So this is one to look out for, for sure. Next up, we have Detective Comics number 1038. I have been loving the Tamaki run so far. This is written, as I said, by Mariko Tamaki, as well as Megan Fitzmartin, with art by Victor Bogdanovich and Carl Mostert. I am very interested in this, uh, in this backup. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis to see what I'm talking about. The Neighborhood, Part 5, Slash, March of the Penguin. An epic battle is taking place in Gotham City. Below the city streets, Batman and Mr. Worth are locked in a deadly duel involving a rocket launcher, a microwave subterranean system, and a whole lot of bloody knuckles. Can Huntress save Lady Clayface before the entire city collapses from underneath itself? Plus, the insidious vile makes his move, and boy, is it ugly. Featuring March of the Penguin, Gotham's seediest gangster is looking to take advantage of the unrest in the city, and the Penguin is finally ready to make his move. Ominous. I really dig this. I like Mr. Worth as a villain. There's not a whole lot to him there, like right now, but there's a lot of potential. And I'm hoping that as the story goes on, we get more development from him. Next up, we have our final Hellfire Gala tie-in of the week, which is Sword Number 6. This is written by Al Ewing with art by Valerio Shiti. And I just... Uh, I love this. 
I'm just, give me more Hellfire Gala. I just want all of it. I just really, really dig it. Um, after the developments from Planet Size, and now that we know how that is going to affect stuff that Sword directly deals with, I can't wait to see how this shakes them up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. This is what comes next. On Earth, the Hellfire Gala is in full swing, but on Sword Station 1, a very different guest list comes together, as Abigail Brand finally unveils her plans for Mysterium and the future of human and mutant kind. Ominous. I love that. Looking forward to picking this up. But the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up, is Infinite Frontier number one. This is written by Joshua Williamson with art by Zermonico and covers by Mitch Jarrods. Um, this is where you need to plant your butt and read if you want to know what's going on with the DC Universe going forward. Uh, we have an awesome multiversal justice league that is going to be dealing with the threat of the ultimate final dark side and it's being led by president superman with my boy roy harper on the team as well let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here when our heroes saved the multiverse from perpetua in dark knight's death metal everything was put back where it belonged and we do mean everything. All the damage from all the crises was undone, and heroes long thought gone returned from whatever exile they had been in. Most of them, at least. Alan Scott, the Green Lantern from the Justice Society of America, has noticed some of his allies are still missing in action, and he's determined to find them. There are others, though, who would rather remain hidden than explain themselves, like Roy Harper, a.k.a. Arsenal, a man who should be dead, but now is not. Plus, what does all this mean for the DCU's place in the multiverse? On opposite sides of a dimensional divide, both Barry Allen and President Superman ponder this question. Not to mention the dark side of it all, or a team of multiversal heroes called Justice Incarnate. So I love all of this, and I really dig that they are essentially at least starting this six-issue miniseries off with everyone in separate places. No one's brought together at the beginning of this. They have to find their way to each other, which is very cool. Looking forward to this. This is going to be your roadmap for the DC Universe going forward. So if you want to know what's going on, this is the book you want to pay attention to. But that wraps up this week's Comics Countdown. To recap, we have Teen Titans Academy number 4, Wonder Woman number 774, Action Comics number 1032, Way of X number 3, Batman Superman number 19, Wolverine number 13, Robin number 3, Fantastic Four Life Story number 2, Superman number 32, Heroes Reborn number 1, Detective Comics number 1038, Sword number 6, and Infinite Frontier number 1. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geeksplain podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. Ratings, reviews, subscriptions, they really help me out, really helps the podcast out, kind of raises our stock in all the weird podcasting algorithm space and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just 
like you. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here on the podcast. You can write whatever you want. You get me that five-star rating and review, and I will read it here. And you can join the likes of our Mighty Nine, that being Seafire ND, Josh from Panels to Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, Brian, Mouth Dork, and Dallas Meeks. I want to say a big thank you to all of these fine folks for their review and I cannot wait to hear yours and if you want to be part of our Geeksplain mailbag if you have a question for me you want to get a quick pitch or maybe you want some comic recommendations that we haven't covered on the podcast yet feel free to send emails to geeksplained at gmail.com put mailbag in the subject header and I will read them and address them here on the podcast and Finally, if you want to keep up to date with the podcast, participate in polls that decide future episodes, or just shoot the shit on all the latest geeky stuff, you can feel free to follow us on the socials, that being Instagram and Twitter, at Pod. that's at GeeksplainedPod. Uh, there's been a lot of stuff going on in the Twitterverse recently, and I would love to have more conversations with you on there. But that is going to do it for this week's episode. I hope everyone is being safe right now. Uh, Los Angeles has lifted a lot of the mask restrictions, so I'm a little weird going on right now. I, uh, I work in a restaurant where they've lifted mask restrictions for not just guests, but vaccinated uh, employees as well. It's weird. I don't know if it's ever going to get back to quote-unquote normal, but I am excited for things to hopefully start to move forward as we go along. And that also means that we get to do fun things like watch Fast 9. Hopefully. We'll see. But I hope everyone out there is staying safe. I hope that you are, if you are able to, you are getting vaccinated. It really does help and it just makes everybody around you safer. This isn't any kind of like advertisement. I just think it's common sense. So sue me. But that is going to do it for this week's episode. Tune in next week. I've got something that I'm very excited about for our final week of June. Tune in for that next Wednesday. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geeksplain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe, and we will see you next time. (laughs) 